There are three basic things that you have to remember when you get up to preach. First one is make sure your zipper's pulled up. The second one is for all presentations, you're supposed to never, ever, ever start with an apology. And the third one is when you're preaching, you should probably do an expository sermon. Meaning, take a section of the scripture and delve into it and bring it to people so that they can use it in application and and, uh, get its context correct. Well, I'm sorry, but but I'm doing a topical sermon. I'm up for 30 seconds and I'm one for three. When you do a topical sermon, you have a danger of making a point and then taking scripture and making scripture make your case for you. And sometimes uh, the danger is there. You can you can take scripture out of context. So that's why it's dangerous. But I've chosen today to just talk. It's actually a book report is what I'm going to do. I went to Pastor Matt when when the uh, time came for uh, each of each of the deacons preaches once a year. When my time came up, I, I went to Matt and I said, "When you're away with the young adults, um, would it be okay if I I had just finished a book and I said this book is very." very meaningful and something that we all deal with. Would it be okay if I just spoke on a book that I had just finished and and he gave me permission? Because the book is by Tim Keller. Those of you who know of Tim Keller, he's written eight books. He's a pastor at uh, Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. And he is a master at using scripture. He's He's a wonderful author. So the book I want to talk about today is called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. If I follow Tim Keller, I'm pretty sure I'm not going to be using scripture out of context. He wrote the book in 2013. As I said, it's his eighth one. But this topic has been written about since the Garden of Eden, basically. How does, how can I reconcile the incredible pain and suffering that I'm undergoing to a good and loving and all-powerful God. That doesn't make sense. If God was loving, why would he want me to suffer? If God was all-powerful, why doesn't he stop me from suffering? Those, those are the, the questions that people have struggled with through all eternity. While I don't think I'm going to be able to explain all this and solve all this in the next 30 minutes, there are some helpful things from Tim Keller, and um, I think that... Uh, we should take a look at it. So let's dive in. Before we do, I just ask that we just bow our heads and and ask God to join us. Heavenly Father, thank you for this beautiful sunny day, Lord, as we gather in your presence. And we just pray that you would give us a fresh revelation, Lord, about pain and suffering. We all do it, Lord. We all suffer. Lord, we just pray that you would guide our thoughts, that you would join us here today. Use me as an instrument of your grace, Lord. And we ask this in the name of your precious Son, Jesus. Amen. Okay, so Keller starts the book by explaining that his goal is to help us to stop panicking. To take life seriously, but find joy in spite of the world around us. That may seem a little harsh, but since we stood up to worship God this morning, when Lynn got up, sing the first song. Since that time, five children have died violently in the world. As Matt said last week, in the sermon last week, in a 24-hour period, 
155,000 people die. All the really big disasters, the tsunamis, the earthquakes, the floods, where a number of people lose their lives. In the overall statistics, they hardly make a little blip because there's 155,000 people on average die every day. A New York Magazine article was written by Ann Patchett that said, staving off death is one of our favorite pastimes. Whether it's exercise, checking our cholesterol, having mammograms, we're always trying to hedge against our mortality. But then she goes on to talk about the Beltway Sniper. If you recall in Washington, D.C., a number of years back, there was a, a, a man, I think it was a two, a man and his son maybe, that were uh, shooting people totally at random. So she said, how do you reconcile that? I'm going to spend all this time making sure that I live as long as I possibly can, and then randomly I could just be shot. She said, despite our best intentions... Death is still, for the most part, random, and it is absolutely coming. Even if we've reconciled ourselves to that fact, you know, we are, we are all going to die. It's, the, the death rate's 100%. We all know that. How do we deal with financial struggle, chronic illness, personal betrayal? Someone, someone betrays us. Our spouse has an affair. There's a moral failure somewhere. Or just, we're lonely. We just we don't have any friends. We all experience some of those to some extent if we live a normal life span. We can try to ignore it, but when we, we have to come to the conclusion that we can't do it on our own, we need help. Killer's, Keller's contention is that the help that we need has to be spiritual. The first thing I want to explore is uh, as a background, is just how suffering has been viewed by non-Western cultures. Suffering has typically been moralistic, viewed as being moralistic, self-transcendent, fatalistic, or dualistic. So just very briefly, moralistic means that when something goes wrong, it's just a wake-up call that we better change the way we're living. Regardless of whether there's a direct relationship to what we did and how we're suffering, it should be a sign that we better stop doing whatever we're doing. Self-transcendent views comes from Buddhism, where if we're suffering, that means we just need to rid of all, get rid of all our desires. We need to change our consciousness. If we remove ourselves from all material things, we'll be able to have calmness, no matter what's going on around us. Fatalism means that we need to embrace our destiny, that it's, it's the will of Allah, or it's, it's, it's what destiny has, has dealt us. And the highest virtue that we can do is just to submit. Just just give into it and just carry on. And then dualism is the view that everything is a great big cosmic battle of good versus evil. And we really hope we're on the right side. We just hope for the future. That we, we're going to win. The, the fifth one, so, so those four views mean that we either live different, we should live differently, we need to think differently. We need to just embrace our destiny. Or we should just hope for the future. Western culture has added a fifth one, which is secularism. Secularism is different than the others in that it views that suffering is just an interruption in our life and it never has any meaning. There are two things we need to do 
when we're suffering. The secularist would say. One is we have to lessen the pain. And the second one is we have to find the cause and try to remove it. So lessening the pain could be drugs, alcohol, could be exercise, could be I think I'm just going to stop and change jobs, I'm going to quit work and and uh, go move to a beach somewhere. Just try to lessen the pain. Eliminating the cause might be confronting someone who you think has wronged you or lashing out somewhere. Or it may be trying to change something, change some kind of social injustice. If you've got no spiritual realm at all, if you've no no spiritual way to take it, if if you're suffering, then your response is going to be some kind of anger, some kind of outrage. Christianity sees suffering differently than all of these. The, the German philosopher Max Scheler said that Christianity teaching, Christian teaching on suffering, is a complete reversal of attitude compared to the teaching of other cultures and religions. A suffering Christian doesn't just bear their pain stoically. They cry out. They cry out to God. Even Christ cried out to God. Mark 14.34, Jesus said, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow, even to the point of death. A suffering Christian doesn't think that their suffering is necessarily a direct relation of past sin. It might be, but it's not necessarily. It isn't a straight line uh, correlation. Life is just simply not fair. And if we look at Job, we get the, the perfect example of this. We had a great discussion at our small group about about Job. Job's friends all condemned him because he was suffering incredible torment. So they said it has to be because you've got some kind of hidden sinful life. That's the only explanation for it. God condemned his friends for that. And what about Jesus? If anybody ever deserved to have a good life based on their moral character, it was Jesus. And he suffered, and we're going to talk about that in a little while. A suffering Christian also doesn't believe that their suffering is just pay off a debt for past sins. Or, if I just suffer well, if I just live through this, then I must be one of the good guys. Solzhenitsyn stated that when Christ, stated what Christians believe about this better than anyone, he said, the line dividing good and evil runs through the heart of every human being. That's a great quote. Finally, the suffering Christian sees his pain as meaningful, even though you don't, you may not understand it at the time. You may not understand it till glory, actually. There's a purpose to it, and if it's faced correctly, it will draw us closer to God and into more stability than we'd ever imagined. Now, let's be fair. All of the other views of suffering do have elements of truth in them. It isn't right to to love material goods too much. We should try to temper that. Um, some, you could say, as, as Matt said last week, you could say that all suffering is caused by sin, if you go back to the Garden of Eden. And secularism does have some merit, because sometimes social injustice needs to be stopped. But the Christian view says that all of these things are just a little too simplistic. Tim Keller says, while other worldviews lead us to sit 
in the midst of life's joys, foreseeing the coming sorrows. Christianity empowers its people to sit in the midst of the world's sorrows and taste the coming joys. It's a complete reversal. I guess the, the, the way to view it is, if, we, if, if you don't know, if you don't have any spiritual outlet of any kind, if you don't know God, if you're not a Christian, then you're viewing your 70, 80 years on earth as being all there is. And you're just trying to get through with as much happiness as you can. If you belong to Christ and you view eternity, then this time on earth is just a small blip. And we're, we will suffer and we'll struggle. But it, it's teaching us. It's, it's showing us how to grow. It, it, it's, it's doing things to us so that we can be better prepared for eternity. So at the end of the book, Keller talks about the ten things that we should do as Christians when we confront suffering. And I'm going to go through each of them in a moment. But before I do, I want to get to a basic fundamental issue. Talk a little bit more about does the existence of evil, the existence of pain and suffering, point us to the fact that God can't, doesn't exist. A secularist or a skeptic will often use that argument that a good and loving God would not want evil to exist. An all-powerful God would not allow evil to exist. Evil does exist, therefore God mustn't exist. Keller spends a lot of time on that topic, and it's, and it's uh, very well done. He points out that there's a hidden premise in this logic, and that's the assumption that God does not have a good reason for evil to exist. If God has a reason for evil to exist, then it's completely compatible that God exists and evil exists, if there's a reason. The simplest example of this, and it's very simplistic, is you all remember when you were children and your parents made you suffer for your own good, or if you're a parent, you've made your own children suffer for their own good. We can all relate to that when we're sitting in a dentist chair. You know, we're in a dentist chair, and he's coming at us with a drill, and we're hoping that freezing took. And those of, those of you who have ever had when the freezing didn't take, you know exactly what I mean. It's pretty hard to remember that this is for my own good. But at the end of it, there'll be a, a filling in there and no, no more toothache. However, that's too simplistic for all suffering. The skeptic and the believer alike don't buy that when you see 230,000 people killed in a, in a tsunami. Or we look at the civil war in Syria and we, and we see 125,000 people killed, most of whom had nothing to do with the war. They were just, they, they were just bystanders. Or when we see floods in the Philippines like this church has been uh, so attuned to for the last couple of years. They don't seem to have any purpose of instruction. You don't, you don't see a character growth out of those things. But the, the hidden assumption in there is that if I can't see the reason for it, then there can't be a reason for it. We're putting ourselves on the same level of God as God. And we have to remember that if, if God is all-powerful, if he really is all-powerful, then he's also beyond our understanding of wisdom and knowledge. So having the fact that we can't understand what the purpose of a tsunami is does not, to me, mean that there isn't a God. 
this is where I stop with this. With this, uh, I just let it go there. I don't think about it much more deeply than that. I believe that God exists. I believe that He's all powerful, and I also believe He's all knowing. He's omnipotent and He's omniscient. He knows all there is. So that my lack of understanding, I don't use to question whether He exists or not. This topic, if, if it interests you, it, it's quite fascinating. There's probably four chapters of this book on that topic. And he also covers it very deeply in, um, in his book called A Reason for God. So I highly recommend it. If, if that particular topic, um, does evil mean that God doesn't exist, interests you, or if, if you know somebody who's struggling with it, I highly recommend you borrow this book or buy it. So we're going to start from the premise that God exists and suffering is going to happen. So how can we lean on God for help? So a quick reminder from last week's sermon, which was, I, I knew I was doing this two months ago, and Matt's sermon last week just dovetailed perfectly. Um, what a coincidence. But a reminder of the truths that were covered last week. First, suffering is both just and unjust. Okay, Sometimes we suffer as direct consequence of a foolish choice that we made. Sometimes. Sometimes... A three-year-old gets swept away by a tsunami in Indonesia. So sometimes it's just, and sometimes it's unjust to our way of thinking. There's one more balancing truth, too, and that is that God is sovereign, but God is also a suffering God. As Keller says, the Bible teaches that God's completely in control of what happens in history, and yet he exercises that control in such a way that human beings are responsible for their freely chosen actions and the results of those actions. This this doctrine is called compatibilism. And there's lots of books and articles on that. God's in control, but within that control, we make choices. And we sometimes suffer the results of those choices. But what's unique to the Christian faith is that God didn't stop there. He actually came to earth, and he made himself vulnerable to suffering. Jesus suffered horribly on the lead-up to the cross. We, uh, in the uh, um, Sunday school uh, on Who is Jesus, one of the videos showed us exactly what did happen to Jesus in the lead-up to the cross, and the scourge, and the, the, the whip with the tails on it, and those sharpened metal pieces at the end, and when you whip somebody with that, it cuts you right down to the bone. You know, Jesus actually suffered this. God came down to earth and suffered this for us. We can't relate to that. We can't relate to being whipped and being uh, nailed to a cross. But we can relate to being jeered, to being ridiculed, to being made fun of, to being mocked, to being spit at. He also suffered all this. He was tempted. He was assaulted by the devil. We can relate to all those. So whenever we call on God when we're suffering, we can remember that he gets it. He knows exactly what I'm going through, because he went through it himself. Don Carson says, The God on whom we rely knows what suffering's all about, not merely in the way that God knows everything, but by experience. He's experienced it all. So, we move on to Keller's advice. What are the ten things that we need to remember when we're suffering, or when we're helping somebody else who's suffering? It's just as important then. 
So let's summarize. First, we'll all suffer. And we'll likely suffer at some point in our life in a fairly big way. We all struggle with why this is happening. We can see benefits of suffering. Sometimes we can look back and see that that if I hadn't suffered through that, if I hadn't gone through that, that horrible thing that I went through, I wouldn't have grown in that way. So I, we can look back and see that it was a positive thing. We can also look back and we can see that there was random suffering, that it didn't bring benefits that we can understand and we probably never will understand. God is sovereign, and he's infinitely beyond anything. His wisdom is infinitely beyond ours. And he's also a suffering God. He put himself into the furnace with us. He suffered torture and death behind, beyond anything we can comprehend. Okay, so what does Keller tell us about our, uh, what we can do? The first one we can do is we can recognize the type of pain that we're in the midst of. Are we here because of our own behavior? Did we do something that caused this to happen? Did somebody else betray us? Is there, is there, is there a relationship here that has caused this suffering? Or is there something that was completely out of our control? Now, I'm making it sound very simple, but it might be a combination of them all. Just picture something happening to you that was completely out of your control. The stock market crashed and you lost all your money. I don't know. That could then cause you to cry out to a friend and they may spurn you. They may say, well, I guess you got what you deserve then. Which causes you another round of suffering, incredible grief. In which case you may lash back out at them and then realize that I'm feeling guilty I've lost my best friend, and I'm in financial ruin. You know, it, it may be all three of them, but you need to re- recognize what type of pain this is that you're in. Because that's going to lead to how you feel. And it, it, it may be anger at God, it may be grief. Maybe someone has lost their lives who's very close to you. It may, it may be grief. If you're coming alongside somebody, you need to gently find out what, what's going on, what the, what the real cause is, what the root cause is, because you're not going to be able to help them much if you don't know that. Secondly, we have to remember that all pain and suffering is unique. One time Keller talk, uh, says that um, when he was um, in, in, working in the, in the pulpit, and he had a couple uh, come to him after church. Actually, he had a woman come to him after church who was in the middle of a very nasty divorce. And she was really, really struggling. He, he didn't know what to do, but he, he said, we need to talk about this further. I can't talk about it today, but here's a book I want you to read. It, it may give you some help. It's a, it's, a, it's a book on sermons dealing with some of the things that you're suffering with. She came back the next week, and she was on cloud nine. She said, she said that this book had really helped her. It really caused her to view things differently, given her incredible peace and comfort. And she actually said, this book changed my life. So Tim Keller thought, hey, I got this one solved. This one's great. Anytime somebody comes to me a divorce, I just give the books. He ordered a bunch of books. 
The next time somebody came to him with the same struggle, another woman came to him and struggling with a divorce, and he, he gave her the book, and she came back the next week, and she was just distraught. She said, not only did this not help me, but it hurt me. And he recognized that he was oversimplifying help when someone's suffering. It's very, very complex. You can't just use whatever helps, whatever help this person may not necessarily help here. There's a, a French philosopher, Simone Weil, who wrote an essay called Love of God and Affliction, and it really helps to break down the experience of suffering. There's five basic stages of suffering. The first one is isolation. We, we put up walls. We want to stay away. We, we may, it may be our pride. Or maybe we're not getting the support that we need from friends because they don't know how to help us. Maybe friends are not helping us because they're uncomfortable. They don't know how to help us. So they just kind of stay away from us. So there's, there's isolation happens uh, when we begin to suffer. The second part is called implosion, where we become completely self-absorbed. We don't, we don't think of anything else other than what we're going through. Nobody can understand what I'm going through. I just want the pain to stop. I can't take this anymore. The third one is called condemnation, where we think that this is not going away. I don't know what to do with this. Maybe I'm getting what I deserve. Maybe, maybe I, I'm, I'm just not meant to be happy. Maybe I'm just, I've done something wrong somewhere, and I don't know what it is. The next stage after that, then, is anger. We may be angry at ourselves. We may be angry at somebody else if, if we think they've, they've wronged us or contributed to us. But most likely, we're angry at God, or we're just angry at life. We're just angry. And then the fifth one is temptation, where we, we're so sick of it, that we just give in. Fine, if this, is, if this is all there is, if this is all I can get out of life, then I guess I'm just destined for this. I guess this is a, this God. I, I know that God loves me, but I don't see it. I don't feel it. Suffering is going to be the only way I can go. So all of this is to say that suffering is complex. We have to be very careful that we don't oversimplify it. There's... Um, these are these states, each of these stages is like an elements in a chemical compound. We add to the fact that we all have different personalities, we all have different temperature, temperaments, and we, all come, we may come from different cultures. So we put all those factors together and mix it in together, and, and, it, and it's very hard to know how to, uh, to deal with it. So every example of suffering is unique. So we've recognized the variety of pain, and we've looked at the fact that each one is unique, the next steps are a little bit more practical. The next one may surprise you, but it's weeping. Okay, the Bible is full of laments. We should embrace weeping. Psalm 44 says, Why do you sleep, O Lord? Psalm 89 says, Lord, where is your steadfast love of old? The book of Job is filled with cries of lament. Jeremiah says to the Lord in chapter 15, You are to me like a deceptive brook, like a spring that fails. The early reformers thought that complaining to God was simply a lack of faith, and some of them were actually embarrassed that, that uh, the book of Job was in the Bible. Job certainly did struggle with his faith, and in the final chapter he admits it. But biblical scholars today will point out that Job's outbursts 
and his cries and his laments were fully accepted by God and he was vindicated. And then again, there's an even more sobering example. The only person who ever truly did lose God's face and did truly experience darkness, total darkness, was Jesus. The moment he died, everyone betrayed, denied, rejected, or forsaken him, even his father. In Matthew 7, 27, he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When we think of that, surely we can feel free to cry out to God. We don't need to worry that, God, I don't want to show you my weakness. Fourth, we start climbing back up again. We, we, we start to trust him. Some writers point out that the cries of Job, the laments of the Psalms, and the complaints of Jeremiah are the correct way to process suffering. But other writers say that you need to remember the, the passages in the Bible that say that God's wisdom and sovereignty are unfathomable. Keller wants to remind us that they're both there. Both of those passages are valid. They don't negate each other. Trusting in the Lord is a difficult assignment, though. Let's look at Joseph. Now, we don't have time to go through the whole story of Joseph. But for those who know it, was God missing in action when Joseph was stranded in Egypt? Did, jo- did God not hear Joseph when he prayed for his life in the cistern? Keller says that God was hidden, but he was there. There's an almost uncountable list of coincidences that had to happen for Joseph to go through what he went through. For Joseph to get to Egypt alive, then into Pharaoh's court, then into prison, then meeting the cupbearer. If any of those had not happened, then the results would have been different. And enormous numbers of people would have died of starvation, including Joseph's own family. God was working the smallest details of their daily lives, their schedules and their choices. Joseph's brothers did a horrible wrong. They felt guilt and shame, but they were forgiven. They were able to admit it. And all of this came about by suffering. We must never assume that we know enough to mistrust God or be bitter against what he has allowed. Instead, think of something good that's happened to you and all the coincidences, all the, all the little details that had to have happened for that to take place. And once again, let's look at the best example. Jesus was denied and betrayed for a little bit of money. And he cried out to God and said, Thy will be done. Just imagine if you were one of Jesus' followers. You've been following him for three years in his ministry. And you'd, you loved him. And you saw what he had done and what he could do. You saw the miracles. And you're standing at the foot of the cross and you're seeing him be killed. Imagine what you would think. How could anything good come out of this? On the cross, justice and love are being satisfied and death and sin are being defeated. Yet because it doesn't fit into our own limited understanding, we'd be in danger of walking away from God. If we were standing at the foot of the cross after three years of following Jesus and we watched him be killed, we have to admit, we'd be struggling whether do we really believe. And yet, Look at what God turned that into. We're all here today. The next step is a little more obvious. It's praying. 
again, look at Job. Look at, even in his crying out, he was crying out to God. Even though Job's heart and motives were not always right, suffering didn't drive him away from God, it drove him closer to God. That's the most important thing we can learn from Job. Psalm 24 says, God is near to the brokenhearted. Psalm 145 said, He lifts up all who are bowed down. Romans 8 says, He helps groaning Christians with His Spirit. And Hebrews 13 says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. There's no basic, more basic way to face suffering than to seek Him and go to Him. Pray even if you're completely dry. Even if it's agony to do so, read the Scriptures. John Newton said, If we're not getting much out of going to God in prayer, we'll certainly get nothing out of staying away. Keller's next point is right thinking. Something that, again, is hard to do in the midst of trials. Most books and websites today, when they're talking about uh, overcoming fear and anxiety, they'll focus on the removal of negative thoughts. You know, stop thinking negative things. Stop looking at the downside all the time. Don't always go to the worst case. You know, think happy things. I must admit that I've uh, done that myself to my wife and kids. Stop, stop looking at the negative all the time. That's not very helpful if there is actually an issue here. Simply removing negative thoughts may just be refusing to admit how bad things really are. It might feel better for a little while. I'll give you that. But it'll be short-lived. Christian peace doesn't start that way. Christian peace isn't removing things. It's the presence of God itself. The uh, metaphor that Keller used I thought was really good. That um, a rock on, on a shoreline and waves crashing into the rock and the rock holds steady. And the wave gets bigger, and it still holds steady. And then a big wave comes in, and it covers over the rock completely, and you can't see it. Are, do you sit there and think, I guess the rock's gone? No, the wave goes back out, and the rock's still there. You know, God's big enough to take, take it all. Paul helps us with this, too, in this discipline. In, in Philippians 4, 8, and 9, he says, Whatever's true, whatever's noble... Whatever's right, whatever's pure, think about these things. He's not talking about inspirational thoughts, like think happy thoughts. He's talking about teaching, what what teaching the Bible gives us. What does the Bible say about God? What does it say about sin, about prayer, about God's plan of salvation, about our sinful nature? It's a lot different than self-help books on stress relief or meditation. And then in Philippians 4, 6, Paul says, don't be anxious but make requests to God with thanksgiving. That, that, that seems backwards to us. Thanksgiving. He's telling us to remember the ways in which God has already worked in our lives up to now and thank Him for it. Or He's saying, it could be a lot worse. Wherever you are right now, I know you're suffering and I know you're in pain. Think of how bad it could be. Paul's next piece of advice is our next point. It's called reordering our loves. He says to focus on whatever's right, whatever's noble, whatever's pure. But then he goes on to say whatever's lovely, whatever's admirable, whatever's excellent, whatever's praiseworthy. Think about these things. Don't just think godly things, but also engage the affections of the heart. Love the right things, too. If you love your career, it's eventually going to let you down. 
if you love your happiness, if you if you if your virtue, it'll eventually let you down. Augustine said that the only love of the immutable can bring tranquility, and there's only one thing that's immutable, and that's God. Now, if you're thinking, I love my wife, I love my family, I love my job, I love my home, I love my friends, my relatives. What's wrong with that? Well, there's obviously nothing wrong with that. It's all a matter of proportions. C.S. Lewis said, it's probably impossible to love any human being too much. We may love, in, we may love too much in proportion to our love for God, but that's not because we're loving somebody else too much. It's because of the smallness of our love for God. In other words, if you love your family more than you love God, the solution is to love your family less. The solution is to love God more. So get your loves in order. Reorder your loves. Keller's next point is to, it's time now to do self-examination. The, uh, the analogy or the, the metaphor he uses here is a gymnasium. The Greek word gibazdo is means trained, but its literal meaning is exercising naked. The point here is that when you go to the gym, you don't go to the gym with lots of big, loose-fitting clothes on, hiding everything. You go to the gym and all the lumpy bits show. You go to the gym to work on the weak parts. I'm going to, I'm going to fix the things that, I, that are, I'm suffering from, physically. So Keller says that we're in God's gym, and suffering causes us to stop and look at ourselves and see where our weaknesses are, and try to, try to work on those with God. And our trainer and our coach is the best there is. He tells us, No trial has overtaken us that is common to man. And God is faithful. He'll not let you be tempted beyond what you can endure. 1 Corinthians 10. So our last two points have to do with others. If you remember what I said about Simone Weil, talking about isolation. Isolation is absolutely deadly when you're suffering. We need each other. We need to reach out. The early church was famous for dying well because it was a place of unparalleled sympathy and support. If you're struggling, reach out to your church. Reach out to other Christians. Don't stay isolated thinking, I'm just too, they couldn't understand or it's too much bother or I don't want them to see me like this. We need each other. And the final point to go along with that is that we need to receive and give grace and forgiveness. You may be suffering. Maybe the answer is you need to forgive. The best example of this I thought of was, uh, was in my own family. My wife had a very difficult relationship with her mother for years. And then one day God said to her, just love her. Pray for her and just love her. Don't, when she takes a shot at you, don't defend yourself. Don't fight back. Don't say but. Just love her. And it took a while, but over time, the change in that relationship was truly miraculous. It was, it was unbelievable. She's 88 years old now. She's starting to suffer from Alzheimer's. And she calls us every week. 
just to tell us that she loves us. She says, give Big Lynn a hug. Lynn didn't do that. That isn't because of what Lynn did. That God did that. It happened because Lynn listened to God, but God made that change. So that was kind of a drive-by of a 300-page book. It's full of scripture. It uses lots of scripture, and, and I didn't give it enough justice that the scripture that's used in here. It uses a number of um, other wonderful Christian authors and, and lots, of, lots of quotes from them. But please remember the title is Walking with God. It's not Walking with Dr. Phil. It's Walking with God. We need Christ. If you don't know Christ, may I say that that's the first step. You need to know him. You need to be able to trust in him. You need to get on your hands and knees and ask him for forgiveness. You need to repent and invite him into your life. He can be there when you struggle. It's the most important step you can take. If you want to talk about that, I'd, I'd love to talk to you about it or any of the other deacons. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for sending your Son to experience suffering and pain far beyond we ever can, so that when we go to you, you know where we're coming from, Lord. You understand. Lord, give us wisdom. Help us to not try to solve other people's problems for them. Help us not to judge. Help us to be wise. Help us to to lean on you. Lord, we pray that you'd go with us today. And we ask this in the name of your precious Son, Jesus. Amen.